all of the wonderful children that want to go off to children's ministry, you can head to the back and, and someone will take you down to your class. As I was preparing for, as I was getting ready to prepare for Sunday morning, I was, you know, kind of tossing around, talking to God. Can I talk about this? Is this something, you know, I can minister on? And, and, uh, and I just wasn't going to have a peace about it, so I was standing in my kitchen, and I just like, God, you're going to have to give me something to preach on, because I don't like to... I, I don't like to just pick a subject. I, I like to minister from what God puts on my heart so I can speak from my heart. So I'm like, God, you know, I just need you to give me something to speak on. What do you want to talk? What, what's the words that you want for the church? And it was like in an instant, he, um, he dropped into my heart and, it, and it, uh, it kind of arrested me. And he said, counterfeit Christianity. And I literally was like... <laughs> okay, you're going to have to show me what exactly it is that you're wanting to say. And so I, I began to study, and, and uh, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to read a couple of statements that aren't true. So don't, don't, don't get offended when you hear them. The way to be accepted by God is to try to sincerely live a good life. God is satisfied if a person lives the best life he can. As long as you follow all of the religious traditions, you will be in right standing with God. Those aren't true statements. They're not, they're not true statements, and we collectively, most of us, would listen to those statements and say, no, that's not right. That's a little twisted. And we would all agree, we'd say no, but at times you will find us living our lives like that. Living our lives that if I do enough good works, God will accept me, God will love me. If I do enough religious things, if I show up for church, I, I don't know, whatever, God, I will be in right standing with God. And that belief is counterfeit Christianity. That's counterfeit Christianity. See, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 to 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Is it anything that you did? In Romans 5.8, it says, For God demonstrates his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You didn't do anything. You were still a sinner. And, and Christ died for you, and God came after you. In Galatians 2.21, it says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If it was some kind of religious thing that I had to do to be accepted by God, then Christ didn't need to die. Amen? Amen. 
So he started to talk to me about counterfeit Christianity and how Christ died for us so that we could be in right standing. But when we live out of works or what we think it should be or how it should look, that becomes counterfeit. Counterfeit means this. A copy that is represented as the original. It is not genuine, is imitating something superior. It's imitating something greater than itself. Counterfeit Christianity takes pride in human works as if it puts you in right standing with God. Counterfeit Christianity takes pride in religious rituals as if that puts you in right standing with God. The enemy counterfeits what God creates. The enemy cannot create. God creates. The enemy counterfeits it. In 2 Corinthians 11.3 it says, But now I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's clever lies, your thoughts may be corrupted and you may lose your single-hearted devotion and pure love for Christ. That just how the enemy works is he comes and speaks little lies, counterfeits what got little things, counterfeits, which changes how you think. And he says, I'm afraid. Paul says, I'm afraid of this. That just how the serpent tempted Eve and got into how she thinks with her, his clever lies, he says, I'm afraid that your thoughts will be corrupted and you may lose your single-hearted devotion and pure love for God. You only counterfeit something that has a lot of value. There's no point in counterfeiting something cheap. In our Christian walk, being a Christian has a lot of value. And so the enemy tries to counterfeit it. When Jarrett and I, our first time to Mexico, we were young, we were in our early 20s, and it was our first trip to Mexico, and at that time, Mexico was really producing counterfeit things. They still do, but at this point, it was everywhere. You could get Chanel purses, Louis Vuitton, like everything fake. And Jarrett, we went down there, and we went down to the market, and Jarrett was in to getting a Rolex watch. Remember that? So we... <laughs> So we go down to the market and we are looking at Rolex watches. We are spending all day in the market. And so they'd say, oh, okay, you, you know, look at what I have. I have great things for you. It's a good price for you today. And so then we were looking and no, there wasn't. It was, Jarrett was very particular about what he was kind of looking for. And so they'd say, go down there, see my cousin. My cousin has it. So we'd go down, see his cousin's cousin didn't have it. So we were looking and looking and looking for this Rolex watch. And we left the market that day. We did not find the Rolex watch that we were looking for. <clears throat> and so about three days later, it's like seven in the morning. We are at our resort sleeping and our phone rings in our room. These are salesmen, let me tell you. Jared picks up the phone and he says, hello, my friend. My cousin came down from Guadalajara and brought the watch that you were looking for. How they knew who we were, what room we were in, or where we were staying is a mystery. We never told them that stuff, but they found us. 
So that day we went down to the market, back to the market, and we, you know, as soon as we get there, I mean, we're talking this market's huge, huge, huge. And as soon as they see us coming, everyone knows that we're the people looking for the thing. Oh, oh, through there, through there, he's in the middle. And it's okay, and we, you know, we kind of make our way through there. So we get there and there is the watch. Is this the one you've been looking for, my friend? Yes, it is. So we bought it, we paid $50 for it or something like that, which is extremely cheap if it was a real Rolex watch. So it looked like a Rolex watch. It was beautiful on the outside. It was probably spray painted, I don't remember, but it was gold and beautiful and it said Rolex and it had the Rolex symbol and it was just all Rolex, it was gorgeous. So Jarrett brought it home and he wore it and uh, it was great. Looked like a Rolex until it broke. And then we went to our friendly neighborhood jeweler, watchmaker, we went down to Boshin's and Alex, familiar with Rolex watches, likes Rolex watches. Jarrett brings in his Rolex watch to get fixed. And Alex opens up the Rolex watch and says, oh, Jarrett, oh, no, no, no. This is not a Rolex watch. This looks nothing like a Rolex watch on the inside. On the outside, it said Rolex, it looked like a Rolex, it was beautiful like a Rolex. On the inside, it was not a Rolex. It didn't look like a Rolex. It was a counterfeit. On the inside, only a watchmaker would be able to tell you, this is counterfeit, this isn't real. It's the inside that matters. Verse Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at the appearance or on the height or of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. A man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Think about that right now. All in this place, the Lord is looking at your heart. All of us, not our outside appearance. You all look great. I see two matching hats in the back. That's cool twins. God is looking at the heart. Philippians 3, 1 to 11, it says in the Passion Translation, my beloved ones, don't ever limit your joy or fail to rejoice in the wonderful experience of knowing our Lord Jesus. This is not part of the message, but look at it. It says, don't ever limit your joy or fail to rejoice in the wonderful experience of knowing Jesus. You can know Jesus. You can't put a limit on knowing Jesus. And the more that you know Jesus, the more joy you have. I don't mind repeating what I've already written you because it protects you. He says, I'm going to say this again because this is for your protection. Beware of those religious hypocrites who teach that you should be circumcised to please God. For we have already experienced heart circumcision, and we worship God in the power and freedom of the Holy Spirit, not in laws and religious duties. He says, beware of this. Beware of the worship that comes from religious duties. 
We are those who boast in what Jesus Christ has done, not in what we can accomplish in our own strength. It's about what Jesus did, not about what we did. He loved us first. He says, it's true that I once relied on all that I had become. I had a reason to boast and impress people with my accomplishments more than others, for my pedigree was impeccable. He, he followed the religious system to a T. That's what he's saying. I, man, I, I did it impeccably. I was perfect at it. He says, but I don't even boast in that. It's what Jesus did for me. Beware of counterfeit Christianity, which adds human merit to the person and the work of Jesus. Beware. Remember we, remember we talked about last week about beware. This is a warning. This is be careful. Danger, danger, danger. Be careful that nothing is added to the work of Jesus. Be careful that you don't think that you could do anything to add to Jesus dying on the cross and what that meant for you. First Timothy 1, verse 5 to 7 says, The whole point of what we're urging is simply love. Love uncontaminated by self-interest and counterfeit faith. A life that's open to God. Those who fail to keep to this point soon wander off into cul-de-sacs of gossip. This is the message. They set themselves up as experts on religious issues, but haven't the remotest idea of what they're holding faith with such imposing eloquence. He says, be sure that you don't become contaminated by self-interest and counterfeit faith. How do you do that? Live a life that's open to God. Live a life where your heart is open to God. Search me, try me, whatever God, whatever you see. My life open to God. In, in the New Testament, they talk a lot about circumcision and in that time period, that was a, circumcision was a big deal. It was a religious law. It was a big thing. And so Paul comes and he begins to talk about it like, look, circumcision isn't a big deal, guys. And so this is what I'm going to read. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, it says, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. What matters is that I'm obeying God. What matters is that my life is open to God. It's not about following this religious system. It's what matters is that my life, my heart is open to God. He says it again in Galatians 6 verse 15. Let me be clear. Circumcision won't save you. Uncircumcision won't either for that matter. For both amount to nothing. God's new creation is what counts and it counts for everything. You following religious systems, it doesn't count. What counts is that you are a new creation, 
old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That you are seated with Christ. That you are a son or a daughter. This is what counts and what counts for everything. You following a religious system, a religious way of doing things doesn't count. Circumcision doesn't count. Uncircumcision doesn't count. But yet we try to conduct our life that way. Like I could add to what Jesus has done. Galatians 5 verse 6 says, I suspect you would never intend this, but this is what happens. When you, you didn't intend to do this, but when it does happen, this is what happens. When you attempt to live by your own religious plans and projects, you are cut off from Christ and you fall out of grace. Whoa. Then it says, meanwhile, we expectantly wait for a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. When you're following religious systems, however it may be, I show up at church on Sunday morning because that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, I, I raise my hands, I clap my hands, I give in the offering. I am kind to people, I pray for people. And all those things are good. You should do those things. But where's your heart at when you're doing it? Is it a life open to God or it's because I'm trying to add to what Jesus did? It's because I'm trying to add to being in right standing with the Father. It's because I'm trying to add to how I feel about where I am with God. Because look at it, it says, these things, when you, when you attempt to live by your own religious plans and projects, you are cut off from grace and you fall from grace. Then he says, meanwhile, you expectantly wait for a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. You're doing all of these religious things, waiting for a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. It's not gonna happen. You're following religious systems. It's a life open to God. It's a heart open to God. In Romans, I'll finish the verse first. For in Christ, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters is something far, far more interior, faith expressed in love. I'll lead one more verse on circumcision. <laughs> Romans 2.29 But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and true circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit not by the fulfillment of the letter of the law. His praise is not from men but from God. It's not the letter of the law. It's by the spirit. 1 Timothy 3, verse 5 says, Holding to a form of outward godliness, religion, although they have denied its power, for their conduct nullifies their claim of faith. Avoid such people and keep far away from them. Holding to a form of godliness, but denying the power. Looking good on the outside looking like a beautiful Rolex without the inner workings of a Rolex. I'm going to read a quote. It's a long quote, and um, I apologize, but I cannot for the life of me think right now of 
of the name of the person who's a minister from the early 1900s, and he spoke on this verse, and this is what he said. Look in another direction at those hundreds of people whose religion seems to consist of a lot of talk and profession. They know the theory of the gospel with their heads, and they, present, they profess to delight in doctrine. They can say a lot about the soundness of their own views and the ignorance of all those who disagree with them, but they never get any further. When you examine their inner lives, you find they know nothing of practical godliness. They're neither truthful, nor loving, nor humble, nor honest, nor kind, nor gentle, nor giving, nor honorable. What shall we say of these people? They claim to be Christians, and yet there is neither substance nor fruit in their Christianity. There is but one thing to be said. They are formal Christians. Their religion is only an empty form. So you can have a nice car, and I'll try my best to speak car language. You can have a nice car, and it, it can be beautiful on the outside. It's got a nice paint job, and it's got all the things that you'd want, you know? Chrome. Because <laughs> someone else, uh, what else is there? What do you want on the outside of a car? Megs, rims, tires. Just, it looks amazing. This is a beautiful car. But then when you open the hood and there's no engine in it, all you have is the form. There's no power there. You have a nice looking car, but it's useless. It's just the form. And, and, and here he even, he even quotes, he says, these people that have just the form, there's no kindness, there's no love, there's no gentleness. Nothing is coming in them. Why? Because there's no relationship with God. They have religion, not relationship. So he goes on to say, what shall we say of these testimonies of Scripture? It would be easy to add to them. They do not stand alone. If words mean anything, there are a clear warning to all who profess and call themselves Christians. They teach us plainly that as we dread sin and avoid sin, so we ought to dread formalism and avoid formalism. Formalism will take your hand with a smile and look like a brother. While sin comes against us with a drawn sword and strikes at us like an enemy, but both have one end in view. Both want to ruin our souls. And of the two, formalism is the one most likely to do it. So he's saying, sin comes at you. Sin, 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 sin. We're like, it's wrong, it's wrong. We knew it was wrong. And he's saying, formalism comes in there sneaky, this is, this is okay. This is in the Bible. This is how we worship. This is, we need to give our offerings. This is, this is why. I've had to do the same thing myself in my life all the time. I've had to check my heart, get up to pray. Why am I doing this? Because it's the right thing to do? 
or because my heart is open to God? Why am I giving in the offering? Just because this is what we do or my heart is open to God? Am I just doing the form? Giving in the offering. Raise my hands, this is what we do. Or is it coming from my heart? And sometimes we have to evaluate that. Sometimes we just get in the ditch that way where we just, routine, it's what I do. Instead of it coming from my heart. Formalism is the use of forms of worship without regard to its inner significance. Matthew 15, verse 8 says, The people honor me. Excuse me, I'm going to go to Romans 2. So the judgment will be revealed on the day when God, through Jesus the Messiah, judges the hidden secrets of people's hearts. I said before, he sees your heart. He sees your heart. Matthew 15, verse 8, it says, They honor, the people honor me only with their words, for their hearts are so very distant from me. They pretend to worship me, but their worship is nothing more than the empty traditions of men. Can you hear the Father in this? I, I see them. And they're saying all the right things and they're doing all the right things, but their hearts aren't there. Isaiah 29, it's a similar verse. He says, Because the nations approach me only with their words and honor me only with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me is a tradition that is learned by rote without any regard for its meaning without any regard for its meaning. Why am I doing this? What's my reason for worshiping this? Is it because it makes me feel good? Or is my heart, is my heart drawn towards him? Jeremiah 17.10, I'm just going to read these three quickly. Uh, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. First Chronicles 28, 9. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Matthew 22:37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. It's your heart. We worship with our hearts. In 1 Samuel 4, I'm not going to read it. You can read it. Uh, Israel had just got beaten in war by the Philistines. And so Israel comes back and they regroup and they have this idea. This is how we'll get the Philistines because we know stories and stuff. And so we'll go get the Ark of the Lord and we'll bring it here. We'll do some worship stuff. Then we'll defeat the Philistines. Then for sure, we got it in the bag. So they go get the Ark. And the Bible says that they bring the Ark 
and they start shouting and they're doing some like stuff yes and you know that's what the bible says we'll defeat our enemies when we worship so they're doing all of this they go back to war and they get slaughtered slaughtered and even worse the philistines take the ark of the lord They went and did their religious rituals. Not, they wanted what they could get from God. Not, they didn't want God. And how many times in our own lives, and God's so faithful, he's so awesome, but you know, in our own lives, we're like, don't talk to him on a regular basis, but when stuff goes bad, then it's like, I know what I'll do. I'll turn on the worship music and the worship, uh, you know, it'll bring down the mountains or the giants or we worship because we're wanting to get something. And God's not mad, he's not mad. But, but hear what he's saying, I, I know where your heart's at. Do you want me? Or do you want what I can give you? So they get, Israel, Israel gets slaughtered. They take the ark of the Lord. Eli finds out. He falls on his back and breaks his neck and dies. One of his daughter-in-laws is pregnant. She hears that the Ark of the Lord is gone. She goes into labor. And she names her baby Ichabod. Not Ichabod Crane, just Ichabod. And Ichabod means the glory is gone. The glory is gone. And I read that and I thought, hmm. He searches the hearts. He searches the hearts. The glory, the glory comes and rests when people's hearts are turned towards him. Not when it's out of religious obligation or what makes us feel better or good. So, Chapters go by, lots of things happen, and we're in 1 Samuel 7, I think, or 6, 1 Samuel 7, and now they've got the Ark of the Lord back. And this is what Samuel says to them in verse 3. If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth pagan goddess from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only for he will rescue you from the hand of the Philistines you see it he's saying this was a heart issue what happened here was a heart issue you thought that you could do this and this would equal this and God says, I search hearts. I know your hearts weren't completely mine. So now Samuel's saying, if you're returning to the Lord with all of your heart, remove the gods 
And he says, from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. In other words, don't do this because of what you can get for him from him. Do this because you want him. Because your heart belongs to him. Isaiah 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, rulers of Jerusalem. You rulers of another Sodom, listen to the law and instruction of God, you people of another Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me without your repentance? Says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed cattle without your obedience, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or ghosts, ghosts, goats offered without repentance. When you come to appear before me, who requires this of you, this trampling of my temple courts by your sinful feet? Do not bring worthless offerings again. Your incense is repulsive to me. Your new moon and Sabbath observances, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure wickedness, your sin, your injustice, your wrongdoing, and the squalor of the festive assembly. I hate the hypocrisy of the new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So here's the thing. The sacrifices and all, that was all appointed by God in the Old Testament. Those were good things to do. And so they're going about doing these good things they're supposed to do, bringing sacrifices to God. And now suddenly God says, don't do this. This is repulsive to me. Why? Because their heart's not in it. I'm bringing this sacrifice of praise because it's what I'm supposed to do. I'm bringing this offering to you because what I'm supposed to do. Another version says, this breaks my heart. This is breaking my heart. And I was overwhelmed by, by just that, that, that there are days that I come and he's so loving and merciful and he's so good. But you just get into the motion of just doing things. And he's like, I can see your heart. I'm not mad. But you're just going through the motions. Those are good things to do. They are. But I want your heart. I want your heart turned towards me. I Counterfeits can look so close to the original. But the maker knows. And the enemy would want you. He would want. He's cool with you playing the religious game. He's cool with that. Because it stops you from relationship with God. If at any time you think that you can earn approval by God, counterfeit. Beware, beware, beware. 
If you think that you can earn love, earn favor, that's not, that's not real. That's not true Christianity. You've been bought with a price. You are in right standing with the Father. You can approach him boldly. He approves of you. And so when you begin to conduct your life this way, he's like, ah, that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. It's not the good news. So the enemy counterfeits it ever so slightly. Are you praying every morning? Better get up. Are you reading your Bible? Better get to it. Those are good things. We should do those things, but where's our heart in it? Psalms 51 verse 17 says, The fountain of your pleasure is found in the sacrifice of my shattered heart before you. His pleasure is your heart. His very pleasure is our heart towards Him. He loves your heart. He doesn't love the things you do in religious things that you do. He loves your heart. That's where His pleasure comes from. Ah, I have their heart. You will not despise the tenderness as I humbly bow down at your feet. You will not despise my tenderness as I humbly bow down at your feet. I love that because it, he doesn't, it doesn't offend him if you don't come to him as a whole person. It doesn't offend him if your life is messed up. It doesn't offend him. It doesn't hurt him. He wants your heart. He's not shocked, surprised, disgusted, none of it. He just wants your heart. That's what brings him pleasure. That's what brings him pleasure. But we... We just take Christianity and it's, and it's skewed like as though we have a list of things that we need to do. And again, they are good things to do. They are recommended. But, but we use or we take it as if, well, this is just what I have to do. Think about it like this. You're in a marriage relationship. You're married, and your husband comes and gives you a hug. And you hug, and then 
He pulls away and you say, thank you. Thank you for hugging me. And he says, oh, I'm married to you. It's what I'm supposed to do. How does that feel? As a wife, you're cleaning the house and, and you made supper and you made everything wonderful and the meal was amazing and whatever. And, and your husband sits down and says, and eats and it was a wonderful meal. And he says, thank you for cooking. This was awesome. And the wife says, what do you expect? It's what I'm supposed to do. It's required of me, so. How does that feel? Doing what's required? Or doing it because I have relationship with you? And I want you to know how much I love you. I cooked this meal for you because I love you. Because you have my heart. I hug you because I love you. Yeah, it's things that people in marriages do, but there's a difference between required and relationship. And in Christianity, there's a difference between religion and relationship. It's because my heart is yours. I do these things, I do all these things because my heart is yours because my life is open to you, God. I'm going to end there. and Adam, you can come, but... I always try, and sometimes it gets away on me and creeps in there, but I always try to be aware of my life why am I doing these things? What's my motivation behind it? Am I going through the motions? Or am I giving my heart? Because of my heart.